Well, as you're grabbing your seat, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and to turn them one more time to John chapter 15. Uh, this summer, we've been walking through this incredible chapter, just taking a slow summer stroll through John 15, a little bit out of a time, but, but today we kind of come to the final stretch. We're going to speed up a little bit to cover this, this unit of verses that run from 18 all the way down to 16.2, 16.4, somewhere around there. And and if you've been journeying with us, you know we've been under this series titled Inhabit, and we've been talking about what it means to live in Christ. And we've said that the essence of the Christian life is about learning to live in Christ, not necessarily live, to live for Christ, that there is a difference between those two prepositions, that we as Christians have been united with Christ by faith. His Holy Spirit is in us, and we are united with him so that what is true of him is true of us. We have access to God through Christ. We can talk to him. We can hear from him. We can be transformed and changed by him. And so we've been exploring this theme, and it's been a, a beautiful kind of movement from Jesus talking about the vine and the branches in the first eight verses. In verses 9 all the way to 17, he kind of explains and provides commentary on what the vine and the branches and fruit bearing and all that imagery means. But then we kind of take a, a sharp turn in verse 18, and and all this life and joy and happy stuff that Jesus seems to be talking about, maybe aside from God's, you know, the Father's pruning of the branches, but maybe aside from that, everything seems kind of positive and, and kind of moving upwards. But then in verse 18, he goes in a direction that might surprise you as it may have surprised his disciples. Because picking up in verse 18, he starts talking about how the world is going to hate his people. How the world's going to hate disciples, and the word hate is used in just about every verse throughout the rest of the chapter, and it's a clear theme that, that Jesus is unpacking and he's prepping his disciples with. Now, it's surprising because you would think that fruit bearing uh, would be embraced by the world, that the fruit of the Holy Spirit blossoming in our lives, the growth in gospel influence as we make disciples and introduce people to the love of the Savior, you would think that would be embraced and welcomed and applauded by the world. But what we find in verse 18 is the exact opposite to be true. He says, begin, if, if the world hated me, understand that it's going to hate you too. The world is not going to be positively inclined towards you, just as it was not positively inclined towards me. Now, back in 1982, Steven Spielberg introduced us to this guy right here. See if anybody recognizes him. Who can tell me who he is? This is E. Harrison Ford. Uh, I don't know about that, but it would be E.T. And E.T., if you're familiar with the movie, it was made in 1982. Most of you, perhaps, weren't even born in 1982. Uh, but 1982, this movie rolled out, and it tells the story of E.T. E.T. is this alien from another world. He is not of this world. He is not a part of this world. And he comes into the world and he meets this little girl and they strike up a friendship. And she brings him into, his, into her home and she begins to take care of him. And he proves to be a, a nice, gentle, sweet creature, bright blue eyes, fun smile, loves Reese's Pieces. Uh, but then one day his mom, or not his mom, but her mom discovers that E.T. is there and she freaks out. She kind of loses her lid and she wants to get this creature, this alien, out of her home as quickly as possible. And soon after that, the government finds out, and they begin to conspire and rally resources in an effort to kill and to stomp out E.T. And you might be wondering, why would anybody want to kill E.T., right? He's got blue eyes, a great smile. All he wants to do is eat Reese's Pieces and go home. That's his story. That's his life. But now you have this woman, and along with the government, everybody wanting to push him out and, and get rid of him. And the question is, why? Why did they want to kill E.T.? Well, they wanted to kill him because he was not of this world. 
He was an alien creature. And his very presence in the world kind of upset their understanding of what it was real and what was true and what was possible. His presence in the world undermined their sense of security and because his very presence threatened their understanding of reality and threatened their, under, their sense of security, they conspired to kill him. Well, when you step into the Gospels, you might, I'm sure you're aware that all throughout the Gospel of John, there's this, been this growing hostility against Jesus that people have started perceiving Jesus as a threat, that he began to shake up their understanding of the very fabric of reality. He's performing miracles. He's doing all these incredible things, and he's upsetting the established order of the Judaic religion and heritage and day that he was stepping into. Jesus was threatening the leader's sense of security. In fact, there's a moment in John chapter 11 where the leaders would say this, so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Jesus' presence was a threat to what they understood to be real, what they understood to be true. He shook up their sense of security in the world and so they conspired to have him killed. They conspired to crucify him. And what is interesting, after their plot kind of unfolds, Jesus one day finds himself standing before Pilate. And Pilate is wondering about his kingdom and wondering about kind of where Jesus is from and all of this. And Jesus looks at Pilate and he says, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is an alien kingdom. My kingdom is a different sort of kingdom than the one you are used to running and the one that you are used to ruling. And then he would tell him, if, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would be fighting right now to defend me. But my kingdom is not of this world, so my servants are not here to fight you. My servants are here to serve you. And this is what Jesus is preparing his disciples for in this last stretch of the Gospel of John just before he goes to that moment. He's instructing his disciples on the nature of his alien presence in the world. And he's instructing his disciples upon the, the nature of his alien kingdom, his kingdom that is of a different sort. And when you and I are thinking rightly about the kingdom of God and we think rightly about who Jesus is, we will find him to be a threat to our very understanding of reality. We will find him in many ways to be a threat to our senses of security in many ways. He's come into the world to shake all of that up. And he's come in to shake it up, not to leave us high and dry, but to shake it up so that we might press into a greater reality and we might find a deeper security in our relationship with him. And so Jesus is an alien king and he leads an alien kingdom. And anyone who, who identifies with him, they too will find themselves living an alien type existence in this world. That your very presence in the world that is will be a living illustration of the threat Jesus poses to our assumed realities and our assumed senses of security. And so Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for how the world's gonna respond to that. And so he says in verse 18, if the world hated me, know that, understand that it, sorry, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you were not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. 
And so he's drawing this reality out. And I love what D.A. Carson says about it in that quote you read a moment ago. I'll just remind you of it. He said, former rebels who have by the grace of the king been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch are not likely to prove popular with those who persist in rebellion. Now this brings us to a myth that we kind of want to debunk this afternoon, a myth that suggests sometimes it is said that if Christians would become more like Christ, they would be more liked in the world. We have this assumption that the problem with Christianity is the church, not Jesus. Now in some cases, that may be true when churches kind of go sideways and churches become prickly and calloused and they lack compassion or they wander from gospel clarity and biblical fidelity and they kind of abandon those dynamics. The church can be a problem, but it is wrong to say that if Christians would become more like Christ, then they would be more liked in the world. Do you understand? Jesus is saying the exact opposite in this passage. That the more you and I become like Christ, the less liked we're going to be in the world. And the reason for that is that the, world's, the world ultimately directs all of its hatred towards Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying over and over and over again in this passage. Pick up again in verse 20. He says, to remember the word that I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name. There it is. On account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. So the world is directing all of its hatred towards Christ. Now let's think a little bit about why that is. Why is the world collectively uh, rebelling against and antagonistic towards Jesus? Why is the human heart not naturally inclined to receiving and believing and rejoicing in Jesus? Why is the natural inclination of our heart to reject and to rebel Christ? Well, one is because when Jesus teaches, he teaches with an unmatched and an unparalleled authority. That when Jesus teaches, he teaches with an authority that the human heart doesn't like. The human heart doesn't like being told what to do. The human heart doesn't like to be governed. It doesn't like to be ruled by anyone or anything outside of the self. And so when Jesus steps into the world and starts teaching about the nature of his kingdom, he, he teaches as onlookers would listen to his teaching. They would say, man, this guy teaches with authority. And this authority would have an effect. It would have an impact on people. And many hearts would recoil. Many hearts would resist and reject his teaching because hearts just do not want to be ruled. And so when we think about the reasons why the world directs its hatred towards Christ, it has to do with his authoritative teaching. That's why there's this emphasis in verse 20 on his word. Now you think about Jesus' teaching, you know that Jesus stepped in the world declaring what is right and what is wrong. He communicated what is holy and what is unholy, what is righteous and what is unrighteous. Now the human heart wants to negotiate those things. The human heart wants to bleed those in together. We want to find justifications for things that we want to consider to be right but Jesus won't let us do that because he's authoritative in his teaching now if you were to read through the gospels and pay real close attention to Jesus's authoritative teaching you're going to hear Jesus say things that will contradict every culture on the planet take for example Jesus's teaching on sexual ethics Jesus's teaching about sexual ethics is not received, it is not welcomed in the Western hemisphere of our world. Western societies, Western cultures like ours do not receive his authority on sex. 
We want to determine what sex is for and how it should be used. And we want to open it up. We want to erase any borders or boundaries or limits to that experience and just and move in that direction. But Jesus steps in and he says, wait a second. And he reminds us of what he designed sex for in the first place. And he even goes so far to say, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, you should gouge it out. And he says that in the Sermon on the Mount with great authority, with great directness. But the point is, our society rejects Jesus' teaching about sex. But what our society might not reject is his teaching about what it means to turn the other cheek. We kind of like Jesus' emphasis on loving enemies and, and being kind to those who are mean to you and repaying evil with good and all those types of things. But if you were to take that teaching and go to the Middle East, you're going to find in the Middle East that they do not reject Jesus' teaching about sexual ethics. They're fine with what Jesus has to say about that. But where they're going to buck, where they're going to recoil is when you talk about loving your enemies, blessing people who persecute you. When you talk about turning the other cheek in that part of the world, they're going to buck. Jesus' authoritative teaching has something to say that contradicts every people group, every cultural climate in the world. And so we want to think about why every culture will, on some level, have a problem with Jesus. Why every culture, every people group on the planet will recoil when it comes to Jesus' authoritative teaching. But that's just one reason why the world hates Jesus. Another reason why the world directs its hatred towards Christ is that he makes very unique claims. He says outlandish things. If we're really honest about what Jesus said about himself, we can only draw one of three conclusions that C.S. Lewis laid out for us years ago. He said, if you really listen to what Jesus has to say and you really pay attention to what he does, then his claim suggests that you can either call him a liar or you can call him a lunatic. He's either a liar or a madman. Those are your two options because if you're not willing to call him a liar or a lunatic, your only other conclusion is to call him Lord. He makes incredibly audacious and unique claims about who he is. You see this in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. Do you see him pressing in, identifying himself very closely to his father? Then he goes on, if I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not have sinned. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. He's telling people that if they reject him, they're rejecting his father. That if they do not respond positively to him, they're not responding positively to God. And so this is part of his unique claim. Now, don't misunderstand the text there when it says, because uh, it kind of, at first glance, verse 22, it might lead you to think, well, if Jesus hadn't shown up, the world would be innocent. Uh, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about a very specific sin that the people he's talking about in this text committed in, a, in the very near future, this, this specific sin of rejecting God's full and ultimate revelation of himself. He's saying, you reject me, you're rejecting God. That's the sin that they're gonna be guilty of. That's the sin that they're gonna be called into account for. And so you wanna think about that because here Jesus is essentially reminding us that he and the Father are one. What is true of him is true of the Father. Our response to him is the same response we give to the Father. This is why we cannot talk about having a relationship with God that's devoid of Jesus. Because Jesus makes this claim. He claims to be God. And when you think about the reasons why Jesus was crucified, the reason he was crucified is because he made this claim. He was convicted of blasphemy. And blasphemy was attributed to him for 
claiming to be and making these claims that he is God. And so one of the re- another reason why the world directs its hatred towards Christ is, is because of the unique claims that he makes. He makes a unique claim in John chapter 14, just prior to this passage, where Jesus is talking to a guy and he says, you know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Meaning you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know me, you know God. That's the claim Jesus is making. And he's claiming that no person can come to God except through, through him. And this is a claim that a world doesn't like. Our world has a pluralistic impulse. The human heart is naturally pluralistic. The human heart wants to affirm everything about everyone. But Jesus steps into the scene. He says, look, you can't affirm everything about everyone. Not every worldview is valid. Not every religion is legit. And one of the reasons why the world directs hatred towards Christ is because he makes this kind of claim that puts all of his people who would identify with him in this position where we're now living our lives in the world unable to embrace the pluralistic impulses of our society. And our inability to embrace pluralism isn't because we do not love the world and it's not because we hate people. Our inability to embrace pluralism is due to our relationship with Jesus. We're following Christ and Christ makes claims that prohibit you and I from embracing pluralism in our lives and in our understanding of the world. And this is another reason why uh, hatred, the hatred that has the, the world directs towards Christ can spill over towards you and I because the more you and I commit to his authoritative teaching and we say what he says about all the things that he speaks on and the more you and I embrace his unique claims, it's gonna not press us closer to the world, it's actually gonna put a bigger wedge between us and the world. But then he goes on and he says, not only does the world direct its hatred towards Christ because of his teaching and his claims, the world directs hatred towards Christ because of his free and transformative salvation. The world likes the concept of grace in theory, but the world we live in does not like grace in actuality. The world likes a a distorted understanding of grace that says, okay, grace means that God accepts us freely. But that's not what Christianity teaches. We do not tell people that God accepts people freely, period. We tell people what we've experienced in the gospel and the grace that we've received, that God accepts us freely and in a transformative fashion. Meaning the grace that accepts us is the grace that transforms us, it's the grace that changes us. So if you have an understanding of grace that says God accepts us freely, period, you have a distorted understanding of what grace is. God's free grace is intended to transform and change our lives. Now you see grace touched on when Jesus reminds us in verse 19 that we have been chosen out of the world, that God set his affections upon us and he called us to himself and he set his affections upon us even while we were shaking our fists in rebellion against him. And we know that this is the kind of God that we have because John 3.16 would tell us that for God so loved the world, God so loved the world that was in rebellion against him, God so loved the world that is rejecting him, God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into the world to, to die for the world. 
And if you're a Christian, you've experienced that reality. You are now following Jesus in light of that love, and you've been accepted by God, but not accepted by God to stay as you are. You are accepted by God to experience transformation over the course of the lifetime. This is what John 15 is all about. Remember John 15, verse 5, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. God's goal for our lives is to become fruitful people. Fruit requires growth. Fruit requires change. Fruit requires transformation. And so when you think about grace, I think this is another reason why the world directs its hatred towards Christ. There was a woman in uh, Timothy Keller's church in New York City who was thinking about grace, and she came to the point in her life where she wanted to reject it. She rejected the gospel. She hated the idea of grace because she understood what grace meant for her. And listen to what she said. She tells Timothy Keller this. She says, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. If she was saved by her good works, and that puts her in the driver's seat in her relationship with God. She can drive so far, but no further than she wants to drive. She can go in the direction that she wants to go if, if she is saved by her good works. But then she goes on. She said, but if I am a sinner saved by grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. If we are saved by grace, then there is nothing God cannot ask of us. We have no rights in the equation if grace is what it is. But the human heart clings to rights. The human heart clings to self-determination. The human heart clings to self-control. And here, God blasts that out of the water. And so one of the reasons the world directs hatred towards Christ is because of this free and transformative salvation, this free and transformative grace of God. And so you think about this because what this means practically for you and for me is that as we live our lives submitting to Jesus' authoritative teaching and as we live our lives embracing his unique claims, and as we experience not only God's saving grace, but God's transforming grace, that's going to make us the kind of people who look a lot like Christ. We are going to remind people of the Jesus that the world crucified. We're going to remind the world of the Jesus the world rejected. And so as we grow, you've got to understand that the more you become like Christ, doesn't mean you're going to be more liked in the world. In fact, it means you will likely be less liked by the world. And so you and I have to be sober-minded about this so we don't get knocked off guard. So that when the world's hatred and hostility is aimed at us, one, we don't take it personally because we know it's ultimately directed at Christ. And two, when it comes at us, we don't start stumbling. Remember chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus says, I'm telling you th these, these things because I don't want you to stumble I don't want you to waver. I don't want you to be knocked out of your faith. I want you to stand firm. I want you to follow me. I want you to be in relationship with me. And so as I'm telling you this to give you a heads up. And so as Christians, we live with our heads up. We're not surprised when the world directs its hatred at Christ. And since we are the closest representatives of Christ in the world, check it. Since we're the only representatives of Christ in the world, that hatred is going to hit us. That hostility is going to hit us. This is what Jesus is saying. 
So we want to know that the world's hatred is directed at Christ, but then second, I want you to think about the form it takes. The world's hatred takes a religious form, and this is what makes it so intense. The world's hatred is religious in its form. Look at chapter 16, verse 2. Check out what Jesus says there. He says, they, referring to leadership, influencers, they will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. So the world's hatred takes a religious form. And this means two things. One, you and I, as Christians, the closer we identify with Christ, we can expect to be excommunicated from different environments. We can expect to be pushed out of certain social circles. We can expect not to be welcomed to every table that exists in the world. When he says there's coming a day when you're going to be banned from synagogues, the synagogue was not only the center of worship, the synagogue was the center of social life for the Jewish people. And he's saying there's going to come a day when you can't participate in any of that. Not because you don't want to, but because they don't want you to. And so we can experience a religious form of excommunication in that when we give our lives to Christ, when we become more like Christ, you will experience people pushing back from the table, excommunicating you from their social circles or from their their parties and their homes and their events and their activities, that can happen to the Christian. I got just a small glimpse of this a few weeks ago when I went to a block block party on my street. Kim and I are getting ready to move into a new home and they were hosting a block party. We went to meet our neighbors and and everybody's having a good time. A lot of people turned out and there was this one guy who was kind of the alpha dog of the group. He had been on the block for a long, long time. He was a mover and a shaker in the crowd, talking to everybody, engaging everybody. He came up to me, he started talking, small talk, and it was going well, I thought. And, and then it got to the point, so, so what do you do for a living? I said, well, here it is. Um, well, I serve, as a, I serve as a pastor. You can, you can make a living doing that? And just was surprised that a guy my age, I guess, would be serving and making a living, I guess, as a pastor. And he was so, he, he just kind of, you could tell the wheels were churning. He was trying to put it all together. I said, yeah, it's, you know, I, I serve Jesus with my life and now I'm a pastor. And uh, his wheels just kept turning. He was trying to reconcile, put it all together. And then finally he just, he didn't say a word. He had a glass, I had a glass. And he just clanked my glass and walked away. <laughs> He didn't say cheers, he didn't say bye, he didn't say anything. He said ding and just left. And I'm sitting there all by myself. Everybody just goes about their thing. And there are people who are watching and saw that interaction. And the rest of the party, I'm just kind of hanging out on my own. You know, that type of uh, social alienation that can arise as a result of your identification with Jesus and that can can happen as a result of your relationship with Christ and how you're serving him in the world. That's just a small, small example. T.S. Eliot experienced a much worse example. Uh, T.S. Eliot's one of the most uh, influential poets of the 20th century. And he became a Christian and he was baptized and started going to church. But before he became a Christian, he was a member of this Bloomsbury group in London. And this Bloomsbury group was a small group of artists and intellectuals who would come together regularly and they would socialize and they would fellowship and they would talk about all their art and all the things that they were producing. And kind of the de facto leader of this group was Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf was a novelist. You've probably read her novels at some point in time. Well, when she learned that T.S. Eliot had become a Christian, she didn't like that very much. And so she wrote a letter to another member of the group. And listen to what she says. She said about Eliot, I've had the most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Eliot, who may be called dead to us, who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church. 
I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there's something absence. There's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. And so they didn't let him come around anymore. They pushed Elliot out of the group. He experienced a type of excommunication. See, the world's hatred takes a religious form where a Christian can be excommunicated from different circles by virtue of their relationship with Jesus. And so we, we remind ourselves of this not so that we're not caught off guard when it happens. We remind ourselves of this so that we don't pander for the sake of being accepted in these circles as well. But then Jesus, uh, Jesus goes on and he not only refers to excommunication, he then refers to something that's a lot more intense than being socially pushed out. He refers to what might be described as execution. He said, there's coming a day when people will kill you and as they are killing you, they're gonna think in their heads that they're serving God. So you move to execution here in this text. Now, this isn't something that we're, that we experience ordinarily in our context and in our culture, but we are the exception right now. The general story of Christianity in the world has been one of persecution and suffering like this. The experience of most Christians around the world is this reality. Right now, well, let's say this. In the 20th century, more Christians were executed as a result of their faith than, than what had happened over, the, over every century combined up to that point. The 20th century was a bloody time for Christianity in the world. And then we turn the corner of the 21st century and the pace hasn't slowed down. It's continuing on a rate that puts us faster than what happened in the 20th, in the 20th century. In Iran right now, Christians in Iran are experiencing the most systematic and intense persecution that exists on the planet. But what's ironic is that those Christians, as they are enduring suffering and they are being persecuted, do you know where the church is growing the fastest? Per capita, the church is growing the fastest in Iran. There was a guy by the name of Tertullian back in the fourth century said that the, uh, the, the seed of the church is the blood of martyrs. That there's this strategy that the world thinks that it can employ to stomp and to stamp out the gospel, to stomp and to stamp out Christians and Christianity, but what God does is he flips the script on it and he shows the world just how sovereign and gracious he is when he actually grows his church through the persecution of his people. And Jesus here, he's reminding us, he's saying, look, I want you to be sober-minded. This is the type of form your, the hatred is gonna take and people are gonna execute you and they're gonna think they're serving God. The most clear case study in all the Bible would be the apostle Saul. Before he became a Christian, what did he do? He killed Christians. He oversaw the execution of Stephen, who was the first martyr in the first century. And we're told that as he, was, as he was breathing threats against the church, he believed he was serving God. He believed he was doing it in service to the Lord. He was, of course, wrong, but that's what he thought. And here Jesus is saying, don't be surprised when the world's hatred takes this form. But the question is, how do you respond to it if you're not supposed to be surprised by it? Well, we do not respond with retaliation. We do not respond with vengeance. We do not respond with anger and bitterness. We do not respond with self-pity. The way we respond to the world's hatred of us is through loving witness. Loving witness is the response we give to the world's hatred. You see this in verse 26 as Jesus moves into talking about the Holy Spirit who's going to come and help us. He says, when the counselor comes, 
the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. But then he says, you also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning, referring to his first disciples. So he's saying the response you're giving to this hatred is a response of loving witness. Now think about the witness that we give. That we as Christians, we bear witness to the beauty of Jesus. We bear witness to the alien nature of the kingdom of God. And we bear this witness before a hostile world. What cannot happen is that we find the world hostile, we find, experience the world's hatred. What that shouldn't lead us to do is to draw back and to isolate ourselves from the world. We're not going to build monasteries out in the middle of nowhere that's detached and separate from all the other populations and all the other people of the world because the world don't like us. We're not going to, you know, pick up our mat and go home. That's not what we do. But at the same time, we're not going to respond to the world's hatred and hostility by assimilating to the culture or assimilating and pandering to their realities so that we so that we curb the edge off the gospel or we downplay Jesus' authoritative teaching or his unique claims or the reality of grace. We don't move in that direction either. Instead, we, we be who Jesus has called us to be and we endure the world's hostility, bearing witness in the midst of it. This means that you and I are to be the salt Jesus says we are. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus says that you are the salt of the earth. And as salt, your presence is designed to prevent decay. Your, your salt is to be distinctive. Your presence is to add some, some flavor to the world in which you live. Now, one of the things I like to do is I like to cook on occasion. And um, the Audubies, who are members of our North Expression, years ago, they introduced me to Malden sea salt flakes. And Malden sea salt flakes are a great uh, sea salt for finishing deals, uh, dishes and fi finishing meats and all these kinds of things. And, and I love it. I use it all the time. But what I really like about Malden sea salt is, is its slogan. Listen to what it says about itself. Malden sea salt is salt as it should be, hand harvested with a distinctive flaky texture and taste that lends, here it is, a certain piquancy to virtually any dish. Now, if you know what the word piquancy means, that means you're, you're probably a foodie. And that means people either love to eat with you or they hate to eat with you. It just kind of depends on, on the dynamic. But the word piquancy means, to, it means pleasantly sharp. And so you think about the role that we have in the world as we bear witness before the hostile world is that we bring a pleasantly sharp flavor to the world. This means that we are a people who are filled with grace and truth. This means we are a people who exercise compassion and we hold to the realities of what Christ teaches and of who Christ claimed to be. We bring a pleasantly sharp flavor to the world. We don't allow the hostility of the world to uh, split those two adjectives. We don't become pleasant to the neglect of sharpness. We don't become so sharp to the neglect of pleasantness. No, we hold the two adjectives together in our life and in our witness being pleasantly sharp, gracious, and truthful people in every moment of every day in the face of hostility and hatred. But then you go on and you see not only do we witness before a hostile world with a certain piquancy, we witness to the glory of Christ. He says, look, the Holy Spirit is being given to you and he will testify about me. The he there is referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves to call people's attention to Jesus. One theologian referred to the Holy Spirit as the self-effacingness of God. Another theologian referred to the Holy Spirit as one who exercises a floodlight ministry in the world. And you know what floodlights do. You walk outside, you see floodlights on the ground, and you don't pay attention to them. You don't focus on the floodlights. No, you turn those on, and they showcase, and they illuminate a structure or an edifice. Well, this is what the Holy Spirit does. 
He comes into the world to bear witness to Jesus, to to draw everyone's attention towards Christ, who he is, what he taught, what he said, what he did. Everyone looking in that direction, the Holy Spirit is given to bear witness to Jesus. And so when you think about the world's hostility and hatred, this means that if we are going to be hated in the world, let it be because we are testifying about Jesus. Let it be because we are floodlights in the world. Let it not be because we are calling everyone's attention to ourselves. You see, a Christian can be mistreated in all, for all kinds of reasons. There are some who are mistreated because they're foolish. And they go about their ministry in a cold or a calloused or their methodology is not sensitive to the, to the rhythms and the heartbeat of the culture in which they are a part of. And so they just kind of stand out as awkward stereotypes and and they may be mistreated but it's not because they're faithfully calling attention to Jesus it may be because they're foolishly calling attention to something else a certain slice of doctrine a certain aspect of Christian teaching and not calling attention to Jesus so sometimes Christians are mistreated because of foolishness but if we're going to be mistreated and hated in the world let it be because of our faithfulness Let it be because we are calling attention to Jesus, which is what the Holy Spirit has been given to us to do. And so that brings us to this last dynamic. We witness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can enable us to love our enemies. Only the Holy Spirit can enable us to bless people who are persecuting us. Only the Holy Spirit can transform us into the kinds of people who remind the world of what Christ is like people who submit to his authoritative teaching and hold out his unique claims and are transformed by his grace, the Holy Spirit actualizes all of those dynamics in our lives. The Holy Spirit makes us living illustrations of this new heaven and this new earth that Jesus is gonna usher in one day. The Holy Spirit calls us out of the world so that we become distinct people marked by piquancy in the world. There was a moment earlier in the gospel where Jesus resurrected someone. He resurrected a guy named Lazarus. He stepped to his tomb and he called his name and Lazarus came walking out of the tomb and from that day forward, Lazarus became a living example of the power of Jesus. He became an example of everything that Jesus wanted to do in redemption and in recreation. But what is interesting, you would think people would be in awe of Lazarus. You would think people would look at Lazarus and just be enamored with him. But listen to what goes down in Lazarus' life. In John chapter 11, chapter 12, this is what is said about him. It says, then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. Don't you love that? The life Jesus gave to Lazarus was the reason many people were coming to believe in Jesus. And the life Jesus gives to you is the reason many people are going to believe in Jesus. And so on one hand, that's what we want. But with that influence comes this opposition where some people aren't going to like that. Some people aren't going to like the fact that you are a reminder of an alien king and an alien kingdom. They're not going to like the fact that you are basically a living protest of the world's rebellion. You're a living protest of the world's rejection of Jesus. 
And so what we want in our lives is to be like Lazarus, to experience his, the power of Jesus in such a way that we become people who many people are believing Jesus because of, and we also at the same time endure any hatred and hostility that might come as a result of that too. And so when we think about praying as a church tonight, I want to pray in that direction. I want to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be within us so that we might be who Jesus has reclaimed and recreated us to be, that we would influence the world for the glory of Jesus and that we would endure any hostility that might creep up as a result of that. So let's pray together.